<laughs> All right. We are finishing up the book of Proverbs. It's been about six months, and we're going to finish up next week in here, okay? And I am so excited about it because then we're going to head into the book of Ecclesiastes as part of our wisdom teaching series. And Ecclesiastes is more like punk rock alternative kind of rebel wisdom. So I'm excited for that change of pace that's going to happen. But I got to tell you, I am geeking out on the last part of the book of Proverbs because it is so good. It's so good. I could preach a lot longer in it, but I'm making myself not do it. But today we're going to take a look at two nuggets of wisdom in a message entitled Being a Rock and Reading the Room. Let's start with Being a Rock. Um, If I was going to do my Welcome to Me thing, I would tell you that when I grew up, I was a rock collector. I still have my rock collection I had from when I was a little kid. I even had my own rock polisher, which I know makes me sound like just this turbo nerd to most of you right now, but I'm okay with that, especially when you read through the Bible and see the high regard that Scripture has for rocks. I'll explain that later, but first, let's look at a proverb out of chapter 24 of the book of Proverbs. If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? You know, Jesus famously uttered these words to a group of his friends. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Let me say that again. In this world, you will have trouble. Many Christians think they won't once they meet Jesus, and Jesus himself promises that the opposite is true. Even if you know me in this world, you are definitely going to have trouble, and that's so true. He's right about that. Nobody makes it through this life without their fair share of heartbreak and heartache and trouble and difficulty. The proverb we just read, the thing I love about it, it admits that. It admits that truth. But the proverb also does something else. The proverb is actually an invitation, and it's an invitation to be the kind of person that others can depend on when they're going through hardship, which means not just being fake strong, not just talking a big game, but actually being strong. There's a comedian named Ryan Hamilton. I really like him. And he, he does a special on Netflix, and he's from a small town in Idaho, so I can relate because I grew up in Pleasant Hill. But he's from a rural town of a 1,000, but he moves to New York, and it's a difficult transition. But he goes, New Yorkers have this kind of attitude, this kind of cocky attitude. They actually have the saying from a Frank Sinatra song that they live by, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And he says during his comedy routine, he goes, no, they can't. They couldn't make it in my town, a rural town of a thousand in Idaho. They couldn't make it. It would be like, hey, what happened to that New Yorker? I don't know. He wandered off looking for gluten-free cupcakes, and three days later, we found a body. So they couldn't make it there. And that's the point of this proverb. It's not enough to just say you are strong. You actually have to be strong. This proverb is about having the kind of strength that enables you to be a rock of strength for people when they need it the most. So let me say a few things about being a rock. Number one, I hope you get this, it hurts to be a rock of strength. When I grew up in the 70s and 80s, we had PE classes. I think those are optional now or don't even exist in some schools. But one of the things we'd do, I don't know why, but we'd be forced to make human pyramids. And as a rather large fellow, at least my senior year, I was always on the bottom. And the bottom row of a human pyramid, like the eight or ten people on that, and then it gets smaller until it's only one person on the top, they were the pillars of strength. They were the ones that held the whole structure. The whole structure was built on. Sure, this nanoscopic little gymnast would climb to the top and get all the glory and fame and attention, but the studs were on the bottom. 
And then people would take a picture, and then after the picture, the same thing happened in every human pyramid. It would collapse. And what happens when it collapses? Everybody falls on the person on the bottom, okay? And it hurts when you're on the bottom. There are bruises and scrapes and cuts and abrasions and even scars, all right? To be a rock for other people, what that means is when they experience rock bottom, it's them landing on you. That's what rock bottom is for them. Being a rock means the kind of person that others can call at 2 o'clock in the morning and verbally vomit on you about all the troubles they're going through. And they have to tell you their stories of woe and trouble over and over and over again because the deeper their pain and trauma, the more they have to talk about it until it can rise to the surface and the healing can begin. Being a rock of strength for people means that you bail them out of jail or at least give them a ride home. Being a rock of strength means you let a person crash at your house because they're going through some really difficult family situation. Being a rock means that you drive them to job interviews because they lost a job, or you drive them to the emergency room because they lost a finger. It's babysitting for them while they go to an AA meeting. It's mowing their lawn while they recover for an illness. It's praying for them as they slog their way through a literal hell on earth. That's what being a rock of strength means. Um, when you're that for other people. Being a rock is a person others can bank on and depend on and fall on. And you can always tell who the rocks of strength are because they have the scars to prove it. You know, in the movies, again, I grew up in the 70s watching these cheap black and white westerns. And in the movies, you could tell who the bad guys were because they had black horse, they wore black clothes, their teeth were usually kind of blackish, and they always had scars, these gnarly scars on their neck or their face. The good guys, not the case. They had a white horse, white clothes, perfectly white teeth, and a beautiful complexion. And so we grew up thinking scars are ugly, scars are bad, scars are for bad people, and that's unfortunate, but fortunately that's changing. There's an artist, you can Google her, her name's Sophie Mayen, and she does this amazing art project, she's a photographer, and it's called Behind the Scars. And what she does is she takes pictures of all different sorts of people, all different ages and sizes and colors of people, and she takes pictures of them and their scars. And they have all different shapes and types of scars. And at first, you're going through the photos and you're taken aback. It's kind of hard to look at sometimes because some of the scars are pretty gnarly. It's like, whoa, look at that scar all over yourself, okay? And you're thinking it's ugly. But then she does something unusual. She lets them tell you the story of how she got the scars, and how the people got the scars. And as you're reading the stories, a transformation happens, and you no longer see the scars as ugly, but you view them as beautiful. And it reminded me of a quote I just love from the book Little Bee, and I'll put this up on the, the screen for us. I ask you right here, please agree with me that a scar is never ugly. That is what the scar makers want us to think. But you and I, we must make an agreement to defy them. We must see all scars as beauty, okay? This will be our secret because take it from me, a scar does not form on the dying. A scar means I survived.
Oh, I love that. Listen, if you are a rock, you're going to get more than your fair share of scars. Probably not physically, I'll admit that. But you're going to get emotional, physical, and mental scars. That's because their pain will become your pain. But please take heart because the scars you get in the helping of other people are the best kind of beauty marks. So the second thing about being a rock, number one, it hurts. Number two, you already are one. This is where the plot thickens. And I realize I get far more excited about the Bible than any of you. That's probably why God wants me to be a pastor. But I'm going to take you on a journey through two different scriptures that are just so amazing. And they relate to this point. Because when I said you already are one, some of you are thinking, swing and a miss, pastor. I am not a rock of strength. I might be like a mud pie of weakness or a dirt clot of flakiness, but I am far from a rock of strength. You couldn't have had that more wrong. That is simply not true. You are a rock of strength. Look at Psalm 18.2. Let's put that on the screen. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. In this passage, and there's a lot of passages that echo this truth, God is called our rock. He's our ultimate rock of strength. Now, as Jesus followers, what are we called? We're called the children of God. Now, I'm getting somewhere here. Many of you have, have looked at a little kid, maybe of a fan or a, not a fan, a fan of yours, a family member or a friend, and said, wow, that little boy is just like his dad or that little girl is just like his mom. They're a chip off the old block. You've heard that phrase before. That's what we are. As children of God, we are so much like our Heavenly Father. We're becoming more and more like Him every day as we follow Jesus. We are a chip off the old block, or you might say a chunk of the rock. You already are a rock of strength because you're just like your Father. Second cool verse. Let's read this one. This is out of the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, this is like a run-on sentence. It's hard to understand, and when you read it, it's easy to pass it by. But this, I'm really going to geek out on you because I'm going to go Greek here, okay? That word power isn't the word for like, ooh, strong muscles. It's far beyond that. It's the word dunamis dunamis, and it means explosive, dynamic power. It's actually the word where we get our own word dynamite from. And that word knowledge is the word epignosis. And it doesn't mean just head knowledge like I know of something. It's knowledge that happens when you have a personal experience with someone. You know something to be true because you've experienced it for yourself. Epignosis and dunamis. So what this verse is saying, ooh, here's how it gets good. It says that through our knowledge, through our epignosis, our personal experience of merging with the presence of God, we are infused with this divine power, this dynamic explosive power. And that power gives us everything we need to live the life that God has planned for us. That's what that verse means. How cool is that verse? And that is so encouraging because I don't know about you, but there are so many situations in my life where I think, oh my gosh, how am I going to make it through this? I need more dunamis. I need more power. Like when you face sudden unexpected loss or when you go through a time of grief that lasts way longer and is way harder than you thought it would be, or when you're going through a horrendous situation in your family or extended family, or here's one that I recently went through, and some of you will go through it this year, 
when you know God is calling you to do something and that you know when you do it, there's going to be pushback from the people around you. You will ruffle their feathers, fingers will be pointed, gossip will be posted, harsh words will be said about you or to you, but you know you're supposed to do it anyway, and you need dunamis to do that kind of stuff. So in situations like these, we have to find a way to have the gumption to keep going and to be strong. We have to tap into dunamis, but here's the good news. That dunamis, that strength is already inside of you. I want to read an excerpt from a story. If you want to read this sometime, it's called The Hero's Journey. I'm probably going to frame this and put it in my office. Use your imagination here. You're in a village, okay? Use your imagination. I don't know what your village looks like. Mine looks like the Shire from Lord of the Rings whenever I hear the word village. So that's where I'm at right now, okay? But your village can be like the gingerbread village. It doesn't matter, whatever it is. You're in a village, and it's nice, safe, familiar, comfortable. Picture that. It's chicken night, and you love chicken. But you feel a call to go to the woods. You've been told your entire life not to go into the woods, but you are compelled, and you leave on chicken night. And it's not nice. It's unsafe. It's unfamiliar. It's uncomfortable. And you're cold and hungry, and you get lost. But you get strong, and you find your own chickens, and you learn your own way. You meet others, people who have never even heard about your village, and you learn from them. You slay dragons, you get wounds, you find swords, and you heal, and you find out what you're made of, and you realize what you were looking for was a part of you all along. I love that. When I say you are a rock of strength, you are, because that strength you didn't believe you had has been inside of you all along. Okay, so lastly, to be a rock. First of all, it hurts. Second of all, you are one already. And lastly, it means to be called out. A friend of Jesus named Peter is actually the one that wrote the book of Second Peter that we read from about Dunamis. And he wasn't exactly known. It's interesting because he wasn't exactly known for being a rock of strength in his life. In fact, what he's most famous for is completely flaking out on Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. Jesus has been arrested by this angry mob that had been stirred up, a violent, angry mob, and he was being sent to his crucifixion. And when they asked Peter about him, Peter denied even knowing him. Not once, not twice, but three times. He flaked out on him. And yet, look what Jesus said about Peter in Matthew 16, 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and it's actually the word Petros. I'll explain that. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. When Jesus said this to Peter, they were at a scary place on the other side of a lake from their hometown, and it was actually called the gates of hell, and it was a hole in a rock where the locusts believed that demons came and went from Hades. So it was a scary place. And Jesus calls him Peter, but it's Petros. Petros means rock. Okay, so Jesus was reminding Peter of his destiny, of who he was. In this scary place, he was going, you're not a scared little person. You're not a scared little man. You are Petros. That's who you are. You're a rock. And your failures in the past and your failures in the future don't define you. What defined him was the sacred exchange that Jesus was having with him. Because when Jesus calls you a rock, you're a rock. 
okay? You can take him at his word. That's what Peter went on to be. He became a rock of strength for other people, and he became a rock that the early church was built on. Jesus was really calling him into his true self. My wife and I were... We were, were tentatively looking to possibly move someday. We're in no rush. But we were looking at a house in our old neighborhood, and it was a neighborhood I'd been in before out, out in South Eugene. And I was driving by a house, and I remember when I was walking in this neighborhood one time, I saw this little kid, and I'll, uh, I've told some of you this story. His name was Richard, and I'd never seen him before, and he was a scrawny little guy, maybe weighed 80 pounds. And he walks up to me, and he goes, Hi, what's your name? And I go my name's Tim, and he goes, my name's Richard with two R's, and I've told people that because I go, I was thinking, well, this kid's not very bright. There's only one R in Richard, and then I thought, oh my gosh, there is two R's in Richard, so I go, okay, you're right, and then he looks at me, and he flexes his little muscles, and I mean little muscles. He basically held his arms up, and they didn't do anything, and he goes, I am stronger, and he points at me, I am stronger than you think, and then he just walks off. Little Richard walks off. That's all he said to me, and I thought, Okay, you probably are. I am stronger than you think. That's what Peter was saying to, I mean, that's what Jesus was saying to Peter. He was basically telling him, look, you are stronger than you think. You are a rock. And I truly believe with all my heart, that's what Jesus wants to speak to us today. You are stronger than you think. Let me call you into that strength that is already inside of you. So to sum up, being a rock of strength is painful, it hurts, you'll get scars, but there'll be beauty marks, okay? You already are one, you're a chunk off the old rock, okay? You're filled with dunamis, and you're being called into that strength by none other than Jesus himself, okay? That's the part I want you to hear. You're stronger than you think. Now let's talk about reading the room, point two in this sermon. We'll end with that, this because it's hot in here, all right? Let me talk about singing. Singing is wonderful. We just sang. It's a wonderful experience. Some of you sing all the time in front of people. Some of you sing in the shower. Okay, singing's good. But there are some situations where singing is not good. You've probably had these experiences. You're with somebody, maybe in a car, and you're listening to one of your favorite songs, and all of a sudden, um, unrequested by you, the person next to you starts singing along to the song. So now you're, not, you're no longer hearing the multi platinum Grammy award-winning golden-voiced artist singing your favorite song, all you can hear is the person next to you singing the song. And that person's won exactly zero Grammys in their life, and they never will hear one. At which point, I usually try politely to turn to the person and go, stop singing. (laughs) I want to listen to the real singer. Stop singing. I love you, but no, okay? There are other situations when we should not sing. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 25. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. So if you go up and sing to somebody who is deeply sad, it's like you might as well pour vinegar in their room, I mean in their wound, or steal their coat from them on a really, really cold day. That's what that proverb's saying. This reminds us that singing happy songs to a person with a heavy heart is cruel and insensitive. You've got to read the room. Many people in the world, and I hope you know this, in fact, many people in this room, because I know many people's stories, suffer with either anxiety or depression or both. Both of those conditions can leave a person feeling very, very heavy-hearted. And it is hard to describe 
how awful anxiety and depression are if you've never experienced it. It's hard for me to describe it without using a litany of swear words to describe it, but I'm not supposed to do that, okay? But I'll try anyway. Let's first start with anxiety. Anxiety, having intense anxiety, is summed up beautifully by an author, and I'll put what he says about it up here. If anxiety was a sound, it would be a Dave Matthews Band jam session. Too many solos, too many instruments, too many cymbals on that drum kit. And then he goes on to say this. My brain finds stuff to worry about. It misfires, shooting off the chemicals usually reserved for something pointy chasing you. That is a brilliant description of anxiety. You're freaked out, and you don't really know why. Your brain just fires adrenaline into your system, whether you want it to or not. Now, let's move on to depression. Depression, like anxiety, also carries it with a a heaviness. When you're depressed, your blood actually feels thick. It's like it has the viscosity of mayonnaise, and you lose your desire to do anything. You're not necessarily sad. You're just totally numb. So you just sit on the pile of clothes that you don't have any, any energy or even desire to wash, and you just want to binge watch TV all day. I want to show you an image from a great little blog site called Hyperbole and a Half, and she does a great, two, she does two great talks on depression. You've read them, I know. Okay, this is how she draws herself when she's depressed. That, if you've never, anybody that's had depression looks at that and goes, oh yeah, been there, okay? It it is so accurate, all right? Now, as someone who knows firsthand about the heaviness of anxiety and depression, let me tell you what not to do if someone close to you that you care about is suffering from one of these two things. First of all, don't sing, just like the proverb says. Don't flaunt your lightness in front of somebody else's heaviness. Now, sometimes singing can be helpful. If they want you to sing, especially praise and worship songs, that can be helpful. It can help lift them out of the pit of their despair that they're in. But if they don't ask you, don't sing. You're just going to make it worse. When people have sang these happy songs in front of me when I'm depressed, my first thought is, well, I'm even sadder now because obviously everybody else in, the, in all of the world is happy except me. So it makes it worse. So don't sing. It's good advice. Number two, speaking of advice, don't give advice. Don't give advice. When we come across people who are heavy-hearted, our first impulse is always to try to fix them. Sometimes that's from really good motivation. You care deeply about them. You don't want to see them in pain. Other times it's from a motivation that's a little darker than that. It's a selfish motivation. You want to fix them because their pain reminds you of the pain that you've tucked away in the dark crevices of your heart. And you don't want to face that, so you try to force them to be happy because it makes you feel safer. And when people try to fix heavy-hearted people, they usually offer advice, and it's usually some of the worst advice on the planet because they're not counselors. Stuff like this. Don't worry, be happy. They quote that song all the time to depress people. Don't worry, be happy. Oh, I never thought of that. I'll just turn my depression off like a faucet and turn my happy faucet on, okay? It doesn't work like that. It, oh, I'm getting all fired up. Number two, I had a person say this, just live. I told them I was depressed and they go, ah, forget about it, just live. Oh, thanks. And then I can't tell you what I wanted to say to him afterwards, okay? Number three, do yoga while watching the sunrise. That helps me. 
The last thing I want to do when I'm depressed or anxious is put on yoga pants, okay, number one, and I don't want to wake up early enough to see the sunrise, okay? Number four is a deflection kind of thing. I'm sorry your fish died, but at least you have a cat. Advice like that where they're going, hey, I'm sorry that awful thing happened, but look at all the good stuff in your life. Counting your blessings is helpful, but you don't want to hear it right then, all right? And number five, here's my favorite, my favorite worst one, my top five bummer advice. You just need more faith. Are you, I almost said a bad word, okay. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So now I'm not only depressed and anxious, but I'm a failure to God? Oh, that makes me feel way better, okay? Unsolicited advice, this is what it's like. It's like a person's holding a big, giant, happy fire hose, and they're squirting it in your face. They mean well, but it just stings, okay? That's what it like. So, this begs the question. i got to slow down a little. I'm all excited right now, and I'm talking too fast, so let's just, let's just breathe, Tim. Breathe. So, this begs the question. If someone we care about is, has a heavy heart, we know what we can't do, but what can we do? Number one, please hear this, physical touch, appropriate physical touch, not too much, don't go over the top, but give them a hug, hold their hand, put a hand on their shoulder, walk arm in arm with them. It's so powerful because physical touch grounds people. You see, depression and anxiety isolate people. It gets them to feel like they're all alone in their pain. Physical touch reminds them of the truth, no, you're not, I'm here with you. So number one, physical touch. Number two, just be there. Don't underestimate the power of healing that is contained in your body. What is inside of you, what's been placed there by God, will radiate out of you. So when you're with a person that's heavy-hearted, the strength, the joy, the peace, the hope that God has placed in you will radiate out of you and get on them without you even saying a word. That's the power of community. That's why God calls us to constantly gather together in community because that kind of thing happens. Number three, bear their burdens. The Bible tells us bear one another's burdens. It doesn't say sweep those burdens under a rug and pretend they're not there. No. It says bear them. We do that in two primary ways. Number one, you listen to them. You simply take the time to listen to their pain. Hey, I'm sorry your fish died. It's super dead. It's not coming back to life. Do you want to talk about that? Do you want to talk about your pain? And is that the only thing causing your heaviness? Is there something else going on? Listening is one of the most powerful things you can do to communicate love to another person, and it's a practical way to do that. The second way we bear their burdens is by praying for them. Praying isn't something just trite. Many people think, oh, I'll pray for them, and in their mind they're thinking, I'll pray for them so I can forget about them and no longer have to think about them, and I can move on to my little blissful life. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is this powerful act of solidarity with another human being where you're not just praying for them, you're ushering them into the very presence of God and into their future of wholeness and healing. Praying is so powerful. I've told people this. I've gone through some of the darkest, blackest times of my life, and I've talked to many of you about it. I've talked to you about it several times, Bill, and, and it wasn't, I wasn't ever quite suicidal, 
but I just didn't want to be alive, if that makes sense. It's like, I don't want to kill myself because I'm afraid to do that, but I, I don't want to be alive anymore. I just don't want to be on the planet. And it's in those times I ask people to pray for me, and I felt it. I felt it in my body, and it was a game changer for me. So your prayers aren't trite little items. Your prayers are lifelines for people that, that pull them into the very presence of God. Oh, it's so important. So I'm sure there are more things that we shouldn't do for people who are heavy-hearted, and I'm sure there are more things that we can do, but I think this list was a great place to start, so I hope you found it helpful. But let me pray for us today, can I? God, we are all, every single one of us in this room, stronger than we think. Help us to tap into the dunamis that's inside of us. Because like Joel was praying earlier, some of us are facing stuff that's causing us to lose our hope. Help us to tap into that strength because it's already there. And help us, Lord, to be rocks of strength for the people around us, even when that hurts, because they're going to land on us. And Lord, so many people we run into are heavy-hearted. They're hiding it well, but they're heavy-hearted. Instead of ignoring them, instead of being insensitive to them, instead of offering them some horrendously bad advice, Lord, please give us the courage to hug them, to listen to them, to pray for them, and to bear their burdens. That's the power of community and the beauty of community. We love you, Lord, and thanks for this wisdom out of this amazing book. And everyone said? Amen. Have a glorious